Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be focusing on genetics, past and future advances. The completion of the human genome sequence really was a landmark, and I think it genuinely did herald the dawn of a whole new era in genetics research. And the opportunities these provide for improved healthcare and disease prevention. The problem that the genome sequencing has given us is this vast amount of information and not being sure what an awful lot of it means. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, both our regulars are here, Diana Garnham and my colleague Andrew Jack, and we welcome the writer and broadcaster Vivian Parry. Viv is joint chair of the new National Healthcare Science School of Genetics, and she was awarded the OBE in the recent New Year Honours List. Hello, Vivian. Hello. And finally, we welcome Peter Donnelly, director of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics in Oxford. The reason we're concentrating on genetics for this show is that tonight Peter is giving the first Oxford-London lecture in association with the FT. Hello, Peter. Hi there. Now, about a decade has passed since the official completion of the Human Genome Project, the international effort to read all three billion chemical letters in our genetic code. Yet patients have so far seen very little benefit from this great scientific achievement. So, Peter, were we expecting too much a decade ago? I don't think so. I think the completion of the human genome sequence really was a landmark, and I think it genuinely did herald the dawn of a whole new era in genetics research. Over the past 10 years or so, much of the impact of the genome sequence has been in the way it's facilitated and completely changed the way we've been able to do research. And I think it's just now, 10 years on, and will be much more the case over the next, say, 10 or 15 years, that we'll see its impacts in terms of healthcare. What are going to be the most striking impacts when it comes to patients? I think broadly the idea that because genetics plays a major role in human disease we can use genetics to refine our thinking about disease, whereas previously we lumped diseases together because they happen to share symptoms, we have the possibility of, through genetics, understanding differences between particular versions of, say, diabetes or differences between different types of cancers. And that genetic information will allow us to tailor treatments to the particular causes and the particular disease an individual has. Is that what's summed up by the phrase personalised medicine? That's exactly what it's about, yes. How far is it personalised and in which areas is it most personalised? Cancer, for example, is that a personalised field? I think cancer will be one of the first areas in which it has a really big impact and there are already some examples. In breast cancer, for example, it's relatively routine now to classify breast cancers, breast tumours, in different ways depending on the genetics, the genetic differences of the tumour cells. And that subclassification in breast cancer is helpful, first of all, with prognosis, working out how a patient might do, and secondly, it's hugely informative for choosing the right treatments. 
Now, Vivian, you've got a background in genetics. Looking on over the last 10 years... Hopeless student of genetics. <laughs> what do you think, looking on over the last 10 years? What we've had is an extraordinary amount of information. It's a, an avalanche of information, but I think it's the application that we haven't seen yet. And and I think you have to remember that uh, the MRC did a study showing this relatively recently, that it takes on average 17 years between discovery and application. And it's a longer time frame than we would like. And I remember all those years ago on Tomorrow's World saying everything would be available in three years' time. I had to say that we got away with saying that there would be electric cars on every street in three years, uh, for 30 years before we were rumbled. But <laughs> I know. I mean, as a science journalist writing about medical science, if you ask a researcher when something fundamental advance is going to reach the clinic there's a standard answer five to ten years it's five to ten years for almost anything i think but actually i think it's much more like uh, 20 i agree i think it's going to be 20 years i think with respect to you peter i think you are being slightly over optimistic even now about the, the time scale that may be right i'll give you one example uh, back to cancer again so skin cancers, melanomas, are one of the most dangerous forms of cancer for which we have effectively no treatments currently. About 10 years ago, it was realized that there's a particular gene, a gene called BRAF, in which there's an error in many skin cancers, about two-thirds of them. The genes effectively turned on all the time, which is what causes the cells to grow into tumors. That was a, a basic science discovery about 10 years ago, and we're at the stage now where there are clinical compounds in the early stages of trials and looking very promising. Andrew, you wanted to come in. It's still striking, isn't it, how few biomarkers there are or diagnostic tests to match a lot of the drugs, cancer and, and others that are under development. So I wonder if there still needs to be tighter integration, as it were, between those two different approaches. And that means maybe the drug developers haven't yet fully integrated adequately or re-engineered their own research systems to try to reflect that deeper understanding of genetics as the basis for developing new treatments. I think that's certainly true to an extent that, uh, I mean, there are successful examples of drugs which have been developed based on genetic insights, but they're still very much in the minority. And it, it's a live question about how long it'll take before the recent advances can get turned into drugs. I think you see it almost like it's a it's a huge forest with, you know, millions and millions of trees. And there are certain trees that absolutely stand out. And if you like, they're the blindingly obvious. They're the, the, the treatments that you can get ahead with uh, very quickly. But the rest, actually, you're not sure what it all means. And I think that's the problem that the genome sequencing has given us, is this vast amount of information and not being sure what an awful lot of it means. I completely agree. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, on the one hand, we've learned a huge amount over the last 10 years since the human genome sequence was completed. But uh, as is often the case in science, we've become acutely aware of how much we don't know. We thought there were 30,000, 40,000 genes and suddenly we find there are, there are 20,000 genes. And instead of one gene making one protein, as we thought, you know, we've got one gene making all sorts of stuff. I know. One of the things I'm always conscious of is how long it takes for the delivery system and for the professionals to adjust to a different way of working and for a new style of information. And my sense is that in the NHS, which has so many different subspecialty professional groups, that actually an awful lot of them are unaware of the impact genetics is going to make on 
the delivery of healthcare. If you take, for example, the way technology is purchased in the NHS, I'm imagining that this is going to change quite dramatically over the next 10 years, not just for acute diseases, but for the chronic diseases as the genetics information comes through. Is anybody thinking about those things? Yes, Peter, how prepared is the NHS for your gene revolution? I'm probably not the right person uh, to have a good sense of that. My general impression is not very well prepared. I think I agree that many of the changes that come about through research that's been done in the last couple of years will be 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but it's never too late to start. You're involved in the NHS. Yes. Well, I think what we've seen in the past is we've seen, obviously, there are doctors who are specialists in genetic disease, but there are also scientists who work within the NHS who do uh, genetic uh, testing. And previously, they've been a very discreet little bunch of scientists who do their own thing. And now I think what you're going to see, and this is all part of the Modernising Scientific Careers programme in the NHS, is you're going to see the whole genetics just going through the whole system, you know, like a kind of thread, because genetics touches everything. And I think what you're seeing is you're now seeing a major explanatory role for these new breed of NHS uh, genetic scientists because there will be all sorts of people, GPs, consultants, who won't have this very up-to-date knowledge and they will not only have to explain to patients what genetic information means but to consultants and GPs. Because imagine you're a GP and somebody's gone and got a genetic test off the internet and says, you know, I've had this back, what does it mean? And the average GP is going to look at it and say, God knows. I did one of these things, but and you go in thinking it'll identify these very precise disease connections, and actually they come up with very general sort of, you know, you're a sort of European male, typically that group has a sort of X percent chance of a heart attack or gout or whatever, and so actually not derived at all really from the precise knowledge of your personal genetic material, as it were, but the more overall correlations, you know, that creates expectations that really can't deliver such personalised medicine. Do you, do you think we need sort of tighter control and regulation or a dampening of expectations perhaps around some of those personal tests that are being sold commercially? I think it's really important that someone who's thinking about having a commercial genetics test really understands what they'll learn and what they won't learn. And you're absolutely right that at the moment the ability of, of most of the genetics that we've discovered to make strong predictions about people's health is quite small. It, it's not. I think it's a little bit unfair to say it just uses background rates. Uh, those tests do measure specific things about you and your genes. It's just that most of the genetic risk factors we know individually have a very small effect. It's certainly not the case that for the common diseases there's a gene for heart attack or stroke or diabetes. There are many, many, many risk factors, all of which contribute. As we learn more of those, uh, and but potentially as we find some which have larger effects, then our ability to make predictions will get stronger. But at the moment, you know, I think there's some interest in genetic testing. I think it's important that people know what they'll get back. And I think, as you say, many people misunderstand the kind of information they'll get back. And I think it's important that the companies are responsible and feedback the information in a way that helps people understand what they have learned. Let's look forward beyond these tests. Let's assume that in five or ten years' time, the complete genome will be available accurately for tens of pounds, which is not impossible. Should people be scanned, read in this way. Let's ask people here. Diana, would you have your genome read if it was available? And what would, what would you do with the information? I 
I'm very happy to have my genome read and have it on a card and keep it for when it might be useful. Or I, a keyring. Or a keyring, yes. I, I'm totally relaxed about it. I guess you are as well, Vivian. Well, no, I don't think so necessarily. I, I think the absolutely fascinating thing is what the NHS is faced with, because on the one hand, um, you've got uh, a lot of pharmaceutical companies producing tests, genetic tests, alongside their drugs. So if you have this genetic test and you're a particular type, then our medicine is going to be great for you. And if you haven't got this particular type, then it's not going to be so great for you. And on the one hand, that's a big seam of riches for the pharmaceutical industry selling the test with the product. And it might be that they're really quite expensive, those tests. So would it be cheaper for the NHS to say, oh, well, never mind, we'll have the whole genome sequence at birth for every individual. And then whatever tests come along in the future, whatever drugs, then we don't need to go for some priority test costing us fortunes. We can use the genome we have. As a professional in this area, a professional scientist anyway, would you have your entire genome read and what would you expect to gain from it? I think I would be happy to have my genome read. I've had what you described as the primitive version of the testing that's currently available. I'd hope to be able to learn, as we learn more and more about uh, genetic risk factors, which ones I have and don't have. I think the whole area of genetics and drugs, first of all, how well particular drugs work, and even more seriously, whether particular types of genetic information mean individuals are likely to suffer from adverse side effects. Having that kind of information readily available could be helpful. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. Please join us again for more fascinating tales from the world of science and medicine next week, when we'll be looking, amongst other things, at the ways public health campaigns can nudge people into adopting healthier lifestyles. All that's left for me is to thank our guests, Vivian Parry, Peter Donnelly, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science is produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.